If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and hopefully you do, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 14, and that's where our focus will be this morning. So I don't know if there's any extra sheets floating around. I know we had them laying out for a few weeks here, but if you do have the sheets that has the parables listed on them, um, that's what we're studying this quarter. And today, the emphasis would be on the one that's listed in number 35 there, the Great Supper. But as we go through Luke chapter 14, it also covers 33 through 37, which would be the chief seats, feast of the poor, the great supper, the tower, and the king. So let's, let's look at Luke chapter 14, and since the great supper is the emphasis of what we're going to be looking at, I'm going to start reading in verse 15 and go through verse 24 as an introduction. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited, easy to say, and invited many, and sent his servant at the supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask that you have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his house. Being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the servant said, Then the master said to the servant, Go outside into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of these men who are invited shall taste my supper. So as we look at this parable, we can see that Jesus is using a feast um, to give a lesson here. And going back to our definition of a parable, because I think it's important that we understand this as we go through it, what, what do we say that a parable is? A comparison is putting something beside another for the sake of comparison, right? And so that's what we're going to see here. We have a story about a supper, but it's going to be, it's, it's in comparison to something else. There's the rest of the family. So uh, that's what we're going to see as we go through here. And we know that a feast is not something uncommon to be associated with Jesus. Uh, where did he perform his first miracle? At a wedding feast. And so that's what we'll see here. And if we think about heaven at the end of our pilgrimage, what is it described as? As a feast. So it's not strange, as we said, that, that we would find, you know, this comparison. But as we read through this, you could hear people making excuses, right, why they couldn't come to the feast. So as we go through this parable and talk about it, just think about how many times you may have made excuses and uh, see if you can see yourself in the parable as we go through it, as we talk about the responsibility that, that we have 
and oftentimes how we make excuses. And I thought about Moses as I was preparing for this and thinking about, you know, when God called upon him, what did he start doing? Making excuses. He said he was timid. The people won't uh, believe me. They won't hear me. Everything, but but God God told him what he he said. He said he was going to be with him, right? That he's his man, and to uh, and whatever excuses he was given was unacceptable. So I think you know there's a lesson in that for us today as we think about the responsibilities that we have, and we think about our situations as we uh, give excuses. So as we start into this, let's drop back to verse one of chapter 14. So the parable here is only recorded by Luke, and Luke begins by setting the scene this way. He says, Now it happened as he went into the house, he being Jesus, of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. So there was a motive there, right? And Jesus knew their mindset of the Pharisees. It's a little bit I guess some people would think it's strange that he would sit down, have those feasts with the Pharisees. He, he didn't always have the best relationship with the Pharisees, right? I mean, he uh, debated with them quite a bit. So Jesus knew their mind. He knew what was in their hearts. And um, he was just, and they were just watching him, waiting to see what he would do there. So as we look at verses 2 through 4, it says, And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. He took him and healed him and let him go. So it says there was a man there who had dropsy. Anybody know what that is? Like palsy? It's like a retention of fluid where it makes yeah the tissues, uh, I guess, swell per se. Uh, yeah, congestive heart failure is... Um, read that as well, because I'll be honest with you, I didn't know quite know what dropsy was when I read through there, and it just goes to show you can read something multiple times and not exactly know exactly what you're reading sometimes. <clears throat> so it was on the Sabbath that Jesus healed a man, and that in itself brought about, you know, some issue there. But the Jewish law and also the fourth commandment, we know prohibited working on the Sabbath, but as, and Jesus perceived that they were watching him. However, in verse 4, it says that they kept silent. Um, but the law had stipulated in cases of emergency, it was permissible to do what was necessary on the Sabbath. And as we'll see in verses 5 and 6, Jesus presented an argument to justify the miracle. Um, and he did so by one of the lessons, like when we first started talking, we were talking about the different methods that Jesus used in teaching, and we'll see here where he uses like a rhetorical type of question, which we said is what? Does not demand an answer. And I'm sure Jesus knew the answer before he ever asked the question, right? So let's look at 5 and 6. It says, Then he answered them, saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? And they could not answer him regarding these things. So then we get down to verse uh, 7 through 14. 
and we begin to see um, as we go into what is called uh, taking the lowly place, it says, so he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited to anyone to a wedding, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you come in and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the, low, the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who is invited comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and, be hum and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay. So they're talking about here a couple of things that we can bring out that they were taking the best seats. Um, so they wanted to be seen, right? Wanted to be in the best places. Really what's being taught here is humility, is to humble yourself. Don't try to put yourself above somebody else. The way I understand it, the way that the tables, it's not like we go sit in our living rooms today or we go sit here and everything is a chair with tables around it. They had a lot of times what would be a U-shaped type table, and it would be about 12 to 18 inches off the ground, and then there would be pillows. So the people would sit with their feet kind of behind them, and they would lean on their left arm to eat, and then whoever was hosting the party or the, the festival, he would sit basically at the center there in the U, and so everybody would want to, would try to gather around him. So that, that's a little bit different style. I can't imagine sitting down to eat. Um, but, I mean, even with, like, the Orientals, um, I mean, I know when I used to work for the Japanese, there were similar situations like that, that they still do, do that. Um, there was a Chinese restaurant they would take us to every now and then, and it was a similar type situation. It's a little, little bit different than just sitting in a chair to, to eat, so... But uh, anyway, that's, that was pretty much the custom at that point in time. Um, any questions or comments up to this point? Yes, sir. And it's not that, it, and it's interesting because in the Pharisees watching him and doing good, they were trying to catch him in a gotcha type of moment. It wasn't so much about hey, he's doing good or, or whatever. They were just trying to find fault in the man falsely accuse him. It's interesting their motive in, in doing that as well. But you're right, there's never, it's hard to find a bad time to do good. I'm not sure there is such a thing. And then one of the guests in verse 15 proclaimed the blessedness of eating in the kingdom of God. It says, now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then it goes on in verse 16 to say, 
Then he said to him, he being Jesus, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. So as Jesus begins to give this parable, he's given it directly to the man that spoke in verse 15, but indirectly to everybody that was there and was listening. And also one thing I wanted to point out is in Oriental customs, and I didn't quite honestly didn't know this either, but there was always two invitations given out when there was a festival or a feast of, of this type. There was one that was given out in advance that would tell the day that it was going to occur, but it didn't necessarily specify the, the hour. And then as we see here, once it was ready, the servant was sent out to go and tell him that the feast was ready. And so it's an interesting custom that you would know on a certain day that you were going to have a feast, but you didn't know exactly when it was going to be, and then a servant was sent out to, to, to give the exact time. So in, in, um, in verse 16, and then we said a parable is putting something beside something else for the purpose of a comparison. When it says, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many, what do you think that, who do you think that symbolizes? Well, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Yes, sir, Mike. We're getting closer, but it's, uh, it's God the Father. That's who we need to think about here is a certain man giving a feast and inviting many. So think about God the Father. Then it says in 17, And sent his servant at supper time to say to those who are, are invited, Come, for all things are, are now ready. So what it's talking about here is the preparation suggests that it's God's activity across the many centuries in anticipation of the appearance of Jesus Christ on earth. And the supper... Think about it as signifying the manifold blessings of the gospel. Think, think about the gospel. Think about God preparing for that as we go through it. And uh, I thought about that song, and I thought about even singing it while we were here, but then I realized we don't have song books over here, but we all sing a song, um, All Things Are Ready, Come to the Feast, Come for the Table Now is Spread. I think it goes, You Perishing, or how does you you weary come, for thou shalt be richly fed. And if you think about that, we are going to be richly fed with the gospel, and we're going to be richly fed with salvation and a reward in heaven if, if we do come to the feast, because like Jim said, he's done everything he can for us to prepare the feast. So we can see in verse 17, he sent his servant, as we said, come, in, or come for all things are ready. So who would be the servant that, that is sent to say that all things are ready? Jesus Christ. So the servant was Christ. Uh, Philippians 2 7 says, but made himself of no reputation, but taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And as it says, all things are ready, suggest the fullness of time. And then let's, uh, let's turn over to Galatians 4 4. Somebody wants to read that for us. Yeah, so the thing there is the fullness of time. The fullness of time had come. That's when Jesus came when things were ready. On God's time timetable according to his plan. And then we see that those invited began to make excuses. So we can see in verse 18, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to excuse me. So... 
you know, as, as I was reading through some of the commentary here, and it's talking about buying a piece of, of ground, it's talking about being consumed with the, the things of this world. And oftentimes how we let that keep us from doing the things that uh, we need to do to be in the right relationship with God. And then in 19, yeah. And, and like you said, you know, the one about being married being a good excuse as I was reading through that, I mean, that was one that, that was brought out in some, some of the writings that I read that, hey, if there was any excuse, that was probably one that may be legit because even at that point in time, the first year of marriage, the husband was supposed to be devoted to the wife, couldn't serve in the military. Um, so if there ever was sort of a good excuse, that one might be the, the one out of the bunch that we're going to read here. So. But it, and like Jim said, another one said in verse 19, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them, and I ask that you have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So those making excuses represent the vast multitudes. This is going back to the Jewish people, I think, that you mentioned, Roger. They rejected Christ, right? They, they made excuses, and that's that's what we need to think about as we think about um, the excuses there. Yeah, it was like a roller coaster, wasn't it? Up and down with the Jewish people. They'd fall in and out of favor with God time and time again, as, as we see. Yes, Julie. Yeah, and that, that was brought out in a lot of what I read. That That's the most insulting part about it, is they knew, it, you know, why didn't they reject the, the first invitation? Now they were just being told the time. Um, and I think that's why the host really finds it so offensive, gets so angry, as we see here. Uh, yes, Jeff. Yeah, and um, also I thought back as we were talking through this, is like what you're bringing out, we let things get in our way. Just like we were talking about the uh, sowing, sowing the seed on different type of soils, it really defines the level of their faith. Um, like on the rocky ground, it begins to grow as good for a little while, but then it then it burns up, and that's kind of what you see here is is people that they're hot and cold um, in and out with their faith. Yes, Jeremy. Yeah, and we don't know the time, and that's uh, and that's what's interesting. We always think, even though we don't know the time, we always think we have time, right? We always think I can take care of this later. Later may never get here, so that's something we all need to think about and reflect on. Um, and the later it gets, the harder it gets. You know, we think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm young. I'm going to live life, and then I'll take care of things later in life. It gets harder um, because you kind of get set in your ways. You get used to doing things. Um, so there's no better time than now to take care of something if we have a commitment to do that. So as we see in verse 21, like we were saying that the master gets angry, it says, so that the servant came and reported the things to his master. Then the master of the house, being ang angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the, the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And that kind of goes back to, um, and I should have brought this out when we were looking at 7 through 14, when it was talking about, like in verse 12, then he also said to him who invited, When you have a dinner or supper, do not... Do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and repay. And um, it's interesting now that 
the rich neighbors and those that were invited can't come, now we're going out to the lame and, and those that are sick or whatever. And that, that, that's what it was saying in 12 through 14, a lesson to us. Don't do something for somebody just because they know you know they can repay you and they can do something in return. If you're going to do something, think about those that are less fortunate than you are and do something for them and help them. It's, uh, it's always easy to do something for people that it's easier to do something for people where you think you're going to get something in return. But to know that you're going to do something for somebody that physically or materially can't return the favor, sometimes it's a little bit tougher. But it is, a, it is one of the greatest feelings you can have to do something for somebody and see the joy in some, somebody that's less fortunate, um, the happiness that it brings them. And we need to, we need to realize that as uh, we go through life. It's not about what we can necessarily get out of it, but what can we bring to somebody else? What happiness, what can we do to help provide for somebody else? Absolutely. And it's interesting because, you know, we, like we said, the master, we're comparing that to God and talking about him getting angry. What did he do back in the days of Noah when he got angry? He, you know, short of eight people, everybody was wiped off the face of the earth. So, it, like you said, it's not going to be a pretty day on that day of judgment. And there's nothing we can do to work our way into heaven. It's not based on our works, but on our faith and what our heart condition is. But, you know, we, we need to realize, even though God is a loving God, um, he's also going to be a God of wrath on that day of judgment for those that decided not to come to the feast. And going on into verse 22, it says, And the servant said, Master, it is done as, as you have commanded, and still there is room. So now we're beginning to get into a reference to the Gentiles. The Jewish people have rejected uh, God. They've rejected the Messiah. And now think about the Gentiles. They were. It tells us in Ephesians 2.12. Let's turn over to there if somebody wants to read that for us. So as we were just saying, as you think about the rich friends and, and those others that were invited, that would be representing more like the Jews, right? But then you get into the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. That's more in reference to the Gentiles. They came second here. But um, it says they, they were invited in, but there was there's still room. Then the master said, go out into the highways, the hedges, and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of these those men who were invited shall taste my supper. But going back to verse 23, it's talking about going into the highways, the hedges, compel them to come in that my house may be filled. I think that just helps emphasize the love of God for, for all of mankind. He wants us all to be saved. He wants us all to come to the feast. He doesn't want any of us to be lost. And it just goes to show that he wants his house filled. He wants it filled with the, with the creation, which is us, by his people. Yes. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. So as we look at this um, and looking at the lessons we can learn from this, as we're saying one must, must overcome pride, cultivate humility if he wants to enter the kingdom of God. And then 
it also tells us, let's, let's read 25 through 33. Now great multitudes went out with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intended to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and he is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and he was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So basically, kind of wrapping it up in a nutshell there, what he's saying is Christ may, it's got to take priority in our life, whether it's over our possessions, whether it's our ambitions, whether it's our family, whatever, he's got to come first. And unfortunately, as we probably know throughout time, um, you know, the gospel has divided families, unfortunately. But we got to understand to be with God that, you know, an eternal paradise, um, that we've got to put him above all things. I mean, there's certain jobs we may want. There's certain possessions we may desire. And maybe there's nothing in itself wrong with that. But if it takes priority over God, that's what it's telling us here. And just like it's... It's bringing out, it says, you know, what king goes to war against another and does not first sit down and consider whether he is able uh, to meet him who's coming against him. You take a king that's going to war or you're preparing for battle, you got to count the cost. you gotta under, You got to be all in when you go in. you got to understand what you have. And that's, that's true for us. When we obey the gospel, we got to count the cost. It's going to mean personal sacrifice, and we got to make sure – that, that we see it through, and the same thing with building a tower. you got to sit down and count the cost, whether you have enough to finish it. we got to be willing to finish the life that we, we're living for Christ. we got to see it all the way through. It can't be a hot and cold, up and down type of thing. And then we get into the last couple of verses of the chapter, and we may finish up a couple of minutes early here. But it says, salt is good, but if, if the salt has lost its flavor... How shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So if salt has lost its flavor, what's it good for? Nothing. And if we as Christians have lost our flavor, what are we good for? Nothing. So... I think that's that's a lesson that, that, that we have to learn is we have to keep our flavor. We have to keep our zeal to teach and preach the gospel. We have to see it through all the way to the end. So any questions or comments as we finish up here on today's lessons? Appreciate your time.